uh, a man that meant a lot to me in my life, a friend, a neighbor. I'm going to introduce him to you in the beginning of the sermon. <clears throat> we have his three sisters and brother-in-laws here today. I'd like you to welcome them. And then my son, Ben, just got here on his train from uh, Pittsburgh, lives in Pittsburgh. Fortunately, his train came in just in time. And uh, the deal was, you come here, your dad preach, you eat. <laughs> so thank you, Ben. We'll make it up to you. Uh, when you look at your study guide, don't be too alarmed, even though it's long. It's really not that long. Uh, uh, and I would like you to write in, right after introduction, I'd like you all to write, all those that keep notes, please just write there, Bill, a man who beheld his God. So if you could write that down, I'd appreciate that. Our scripture verse today will be from Isaiah 35.4. But before we get into that, on Sunday, November 7, 2010, Bill died. Bill had been fighting severe pancreatitis for over two years. In the spring of that year, I got a phone call from Bill. Larry, I just came back from the VA. The doctor told me I have stage four pancreatitis, pancreatic cancer and just have a few months to live. Larry, the doctors and nurses are so nice there in Lebanon. It's really a beautiful place. You should see it. They told me that when I need to stay there in the end, they'll get me a motorized wheelchair so that I can visit with other, the other Vietnam vets. I feel so sorry for so many of them. No one ever seems to visit them. They seem forgotten. It's sad. Oh, by the way, Larry, will you be stopping over after work? I just read a fantastic article in one of my science journals about subatomic particles in quantum physics. I would like to talk to you about it if you're free. I'll leave the door open for you. Bill always left the door open. In that same conversation, Bill mentioned to me his amazement and wonder that at the moment that he was told that he was going to die soon, his priorities immediately changed. It was as if someone had given him a pair of tinted sunglasses and the world suddenly looked so much different, so much brighter. He also was amazed, he was so amazed he couldn't stop talking about the change that he immediately had undergone in his perception of how he viewed life and how he viewed death. He mentioned Maybe it's just the little things, but I'm not concerned if my car will pass inspection. I don't have to file my income tax next year. The presidential election of 2012, it's become a non-issue. My to-do list has completely changed. What I want to do is spend as much time as possible with my daughter, my grandchildren, and my sisters. Oh, by the way, you have ne my, never met my sisters, have you? He always used to say this, oh, I wish they lived closer, even though he moved. <laughs> Please don't misunderstand me. Since the day I met Bill, he was not a man that ignored life, nor was he ever cavalier about the consequences of his actions. He had become a unique individual 
that embraced every card that he was dealt and gave joy readily for it, thanks to God, whether it seemed good or whether it seemed bad. For he had learned, after much personal suffering, to look at things in all circumstances as marvelous gifts and great opportunities given to him from a good God. He was such an unusual individual, he went through life in perpetual awe of just about everything that he saw and everyone that he met. Every situation was a new adventure to be had. This perpetual awe and wonder is common among the very young. But it seems that our children are losing this gift, this gift of wonderment, earlier and earlier. We seem to be raising eternal cynics, but that's for another message. But for an adult like Bill to be able to live in perpetual awe and wonderment, this is a very unusual and a very rare gift. I guess you can say not only did Bill stop to smell the roses, he drew pictures of them. He talked about them, tried to explain them to everyone he met, including strangers. The thorny stems that they were carried on seemed to be small inconveniences of no consequence. He tried to explain especially how wonderful the roses were that day. He looked so joyful that when he went for his treatments, he felt it necessary to apologize to the chemo nurses for being happy. He would explain to them that he really was dying. They thought he was in the wrong room, that he really was dying, and he was in great pain. He was just so happy he couldn't stop smiling. I imagine if Bill were on a bus, plunging off a cliff while everyone was screaming and clawing at each other, he'd be throwing up his hands like he's at Hershey Park riding the Fahrenheit, saying to the lady next to him, hey, if you look real quick out the window right there between the trees, you can actually see a blue jay. By the way, my name's Bill. What's yours? According to Bill, he was not always this way. He told me that over the years, God had taken him through a series of events where he was disappointed with himself and with others. Many things did not go the way he wanted or planned, but much later, after many years, God had shown him that God had never let him down. The license plate on Bill's car was a reference from Matthew 18.22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times but 70 times 7. I will say this, only one who has been forgiven much can love much. My hope is that we will all leave here today with two truths that will take hold of us and that we will take hold of them. And this we will do if God permits. Hebrews 6, 8. Picture these truths both engraved on the same opposite sides of the same coin. On one side of the coin, it says, it's not about you. On the other side of the coin, it says, it's all about him. In reality, this coin actually only has one side. It's the all about him side. Our text today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, verses 3 and 4. I'm going to read the entire chapter, uh, starting with verse 1 and ending with verse 10. 
The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and with singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lay down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion will be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come with singing, Come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let us pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we may see Jesus crowned with glory and honor and sitting on his throne in majesty. Give us just a glimpse of this heavenly reality. Let us not be overwhelmed by our disappointments, our grief, our burdens, our cares, or our sufferings. But let us see Jesus, for the sum of our life is not about who we are, but it's about who you are. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Let us behold our God. Looking again at our text today, verses 3 and 4, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, and if you have the King James Bible, it says, say to those with a palpitating heart, fear not, be strong. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. We are admonished in the scriptures to come alongside of those in need. Romans 12.8 How can we do less for others? For if our Savior who freely gives comfort to us in our distress, should we not also freely give? Matthew 10.8 How can we refuse or neglect our fellow brothers and sisters, joint heirs with Christ Jesus, the same tender care? But we are reminded that even, in these, even these charitable acts that we participate in are still acts counted as being done through him, by him and for him, he who is our blessed Savior, Ephesians 2.10 and Matthew 25.40. What greater comfort can there be to a suffering soul in distress but that of 
Behold your God. For this specific phrase only appears twice in the Bible, and both passages are found in the book of Isaiah. The word behold is hine, and the word for God in this passage is Elohim. Look, behold, see your God. It is said as a command. Say to those with an anxious heart, you are only anxious because you stopped beholding your God. The only reason why you're anxious is you stopped looking at me. Behold your God. You could also express hene in the English if you can imagine a drum roll. Ta-da! That's what it means. Ta-da! Behold your God. Look. Numbers 21.9 and John 3.14, the passages that Rob, Roger read today. Many, many people who suddenly experience great and terrible tragedies in their lives or the lives of those whom they deeply love will ask why or why me or why them and usually after those are done they'll ask what if if we are called by God to comfort others in their distress how we answer their questions or even if we should attempt to answer their questions are two things we should prayerfully consider. Many times the least said is the better choice. Be ready to put your hand over your mouth if you're given to quick speech. Ecclesiastes 5.2 The simple words, may I pray for you, may bring more comfort than your best theological discourse. If appropriate, a hug or a hand on the shoulder is worth more than a blank check. Think how the scriptures remember Job's three friends. It seems that the best thing that they are remembered for was not talking at all for seven days. Job 2:13. So consider your words wisely, ask for grace, plead for a merciful tongue before you even set out in your car to visit. Do not just wing it. Do not lean on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord for all wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5. For the words that you speak will either bring comfort, or they will end up rubbing salt into the wounds of a brother or sister's heart. Proverbs 20, verse 25. Let's face it. If we try to answer these questions, the why and the what if, by looking for specific cause and effect relationships, we will most certainly come to wrong or at best partial conclusions. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? John 9, 1 and 2. The answer Jesus gave him was neither A nor B. Job said, tell me, what did I do to deserve this? Job 13, 23 and 24. God answered Job's question by asking him over 60 questions, none of which Job could answer. Okay, Job, here we go. Surprise quiz. Got your number two pencil? 
Ah, don't worry. I have an extra. Oh, Job, how many did you get right? Ah, oh, none. That's a shame. Job, do you want to take the quiz again? Job 42.5 I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job had just beheld his God. Even Joseph, after 13 years of bondage in Egypt, proclaimed to his brothers that their plot to sell him into slavery was actually part of God's merciful plan of redemption and salvation. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50, 20. Even though God had given Joseph great clarity, he still did not see the whole picture. Read Psalms 105 and Matthew 13, 7. Why was Mark Minium ejected from the moving car on the George Wade's bridge at the age of four? Why was he spared that day at the Dock Street Dam and permitted to rescue three men who should have drowned? Yet another man drowned that day at the same location. I see sitting here today at least three brothers and sisters that I know of who have been involved in serious car accidents. And they're still suffering greatly from others' actions. Was not God able to spare them also? All of these questions like why and what if come from a human desire to make sense of horrific events. We need to make sense of horrific events. We need to connect the dots. But most will come to the wrong conclusions when they seek to answer these questions. Like Martha, not our Martha, like Martha, they will readily say, Lord, we believe Lazarus will be raised from the dead at the resurrection. But yet, they, like Martha, will fail to see that it was the resurrection who was speaking with them. John 11:24 through 25. Some may come to the wrong conclusions that if God is all-powerful, he should have never permitted it to happen in the first place. Or that I am justly being punished for my actions. And they end up turning their backs on the only one who makes sense out of anything. They may complain to God, why do bad things happen to good people? The question they should be asking is, why do good things happen to bad people? Luke 13, 1 through 5. Or some will be content to live the rest of their lives in despair, punishing themselves for what they perceive is the just fruit of their reward. It's what they deserve. They will suffer a lifetime without complaint and also without joy. When only if they understood it's not about them, but it's about Him. They make their sufferings as something pleasing to God. Psalm 50, verse 8 through 12. God takes no pleasure in any such sacrifice save his sons. I would be glad to discuss this with you later, Colossians 1.24, but if you bring that up to me, we have to discuss Philippians 2.30 at the same time. Some answers may never come, but like Joseph, some clarity, I repeat, may come. It may come. 
with time. Joseph waited over 13 years. But one answer remains available today that we may count on. A command that brings comfort to its hearers. Behold your God. In the scriptures it states that you are anxious only because you stopped looking at me. Only because you stopped looking at me, the Lord of all peace, are you anxious. Only when Peter turned his gaze from Christ to the waves did he begin to sink. Do you think Ezekiel, while being transported in the flaming chariot on his way to meet his creator, asked the angel warrior driver that day, Why did I have to cook on cow's dung for a year, lying on my side paralyzed? It's not fair! He must not have loved me. He broke his promise. Do you think Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration being bathed in the glory of the eternal creator, the living word, were the least bit forhoodled, I love that word forhoodled, about any of the events of their past lives on this earth? Matthew 17.3. Do you think that Moses complained to Jesus that day why was this the first time that I've been able to enter the promised land? What took so long, Jesus? Why the wait? I would think not. The only one who was confused on the mountain that day was Peter, and all he wanted to do was go camping and sing Kumbaya. <laughs> Matthew 17:4. Moses, Elijah, and Ezekiel fully understood once they met him face to face that it was never about them, but it was always about him. There is no one that has ever passed on, saint or sinner, who is the least bit confused on this point. It is a trustworthy saying, serve the lamb today or face the lion tomorrow. Philippians 2.10 and Isaiah 45. There are only two alternatives. There is not another way. I would like to spend the remaining time talking about the wonder and awe that accompanies the revelation of the knowledge of our God. Ephesians 1.17 through 20. I will declare to you today, behold your God. The heavens declare the glory of the God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 19.1. For when God reveals his glory to us, the whys of life lose their importance. The what-ifs become, for he has done great things, Deuteronomy 10.21 and Psalm 98.1. Let's look at just one of the objects in the heavens that declare his glory to us. There is a stellar object in the skies whose existence pours forth speech about its creator. It's a star, the star V.Y. Canis Majoris. It's a red hypergiant in the constellation Canis Major. It has been estimated that it is approximately 1,975,000,000,000 miles in diameter. It's hard to comprehend anything so large. Just how large is something that's just shy of two trillion miles in diameter? Well, if Canis Majoris were placed in the center of our solar system replacing our sun, 
its surface would lie somewhere between Saturn and Jupiter. Fortunately, this hypergiant appears to, that appears to be on the verge of going hypernova is around 4,000 light years away and should not pose any threat if it implodes. Canis Majoris exists outside the bounds of all current stellar theory. According to all known laws, it should not exist, but it does. In our limited knowledge of the universe, Canis Majoris is what you would call sui generis. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S, sui generis. It is in a class of its own. There is nothing known to man that we can compare with Canis Majoris. It has no equals. Like V.Y. Canis Majoris, its maker is sui generis. He is in a class unto himself. No one or nothing can compare with him. He has many names in the scriptures that each declare an aspect of his being. Now I do say that with great care. Please do not make a mistake. God is not the sum of his parts. For God is spirit and not flesh. John 4.24 Elohim, Psalm 19.1 In reference to his power and his might. Hashem, the name, the self-existent, the eternal one. Leviticus 24.11 El Elyon, Genesis 14.18 The Most High God. El Shaddai, Genesis 17.1 God Almighty. El Roy, Genesis 16.3, the strong one who sees. El Elom, Isaiah 40.28, the everlasting God. These are only a few of his names. There's so many more. The Bible is filled with references to God that describe him as being set apart. Holy, the Hebrew word is kadosh. Apart from anything or anyone in the heavens above or the earth below. He alone possesses supreme perfection. His existence transcends all reason and all sum of the knowledge of mankind. As Solomon states in Kings, 1 Kings 8.27, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. How much less this house that I have built, the sum of all creation, cannot contain him including V.Y. Canis Majoris. There is a word that God uses many times to describe his sui generis, his uniqueness, his being set apart. Revelation 4.8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, and are full of eyes round and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, 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 Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. In the, year King Isaiah, in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah beheld his glory. Isaiah 6.3 Isaiah described what he heard the seraphim say. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These seraphim are great imposing creatures. 
They are described as each having a face of a man and each having six wings. The seraphim described in the Bible are not little babies with tiny fluttering wings. In John chapter 12, verse 41, John says, referring to this vision of Isaiah, when Isaiah beheld his glory, Isaiah was referring to Christ, seated on his throne, high and lifted up. That's John 12, 41. It is a wonderful testimony to the effect of the glory of Christ in Isaiah 6, 5 that the prophet who wowed everything from nations to sinners, when he meets Christ seated on, his, seated on his throne in glory, cries out, Woe is me! In Leviticus 10.3, God says, I will, shown to, I will be shown to be holy, set apart, sui generis, among those who are near me, and before all people, I will be glorified. But what is this holiness of God? How do you describe his being set apart? It makes sense when God says we are to be holy. We are to be set apart for his service. We are to be cut away from the rest of the world to be used of by God. But how do you describe God being set apart for himself? To quote John Piper, the glory of God is his revealed holiness. The glory of God which we see is a manifestation of his holiness which we cannot see. In John chapter 11, starting with verse 4, when Jesus heard it, being Lazarus, the one whom he loved, was sick, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So when Jesus hears that Lazarus desperately needs him, he therefore waits two days longer. He loved Lazarus. He loved Martha. He waits. He waits because he loves them. How many of you have been waiting for God's deliverance? How many of you have been waiting for God's healing? Waiting for a loved one to be saved? Waiting for an answer to some prayer? And yet God continues to wait. For the greatest gift that Jesus could give them was not the healing of Lazarus, or even the raising him from the dead. For this mercy, either mercy, would only be a temporary solution. Do I need to remind any of you, Lazarus attended his funeral a second time. John 11:40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the count of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Never forget, during any trial, any tribulation, or any time of testing, or any time of suffering, the greatest gift 
that God can grant to his children is to reveal his glory to them. Do not cease to pray for your deliverance, your healing, your restoration. Do not cease to pray for any need, great or small. James 5, 13 through 16. But also pray that God reveals his glory in all of these circumstances. Moses pleaded to know God's ways so that he could lead his people. God showed Moses his glory instead. Exodus 33:12 through 21. Moses knew how to lead God's people. He beheld his God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those with a palpitating heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Isaiah 40, verse 7, the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are as grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules, his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him, the recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will, he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens with a span and enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills on a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him? his counsel. Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Or taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are as counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice to, for fuel nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are at nothing before him. They are counted to him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken to God? What likeness compares with him? To whom then will you liken to him? For he is sui generis. He is in a class of his own. Behold your God. Lessons for our lives. It's not about you. It's never about you. It's never been about you. It will never be about you. It's always about Him. Two, the greatest gift that God can grant any of you at any time, any place, and in any circumstance is to reveal His glory to you. Three, God's glory, which we can see, is his holiness revealed which we cannot. Let this be your daily prayer. Father, reveal your glory to us in the midst of trouble and distress. Number four, God is set apart. He is thrice holy. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. 
He is sui generis. He is in a class of his own. No one can compare with him. He has no peers. He has no equals. He has no competition. Number five, let the words, Behold your God, be your battle cry. Lord, if there be any here today that do not know that you are their shepherd, I ask that you reveal your glory to them. I plead for your Holy Spirit to burn these truths into our hearts. We must look to the cross. We must cling to the cross. We must trust in the cross. For in his suffering and in his resurrection only, we will find life. May we always behold our God. That's Ephesians 1, 17 through 18. And this is a true saying. For only when we know that the Lord is my shepherd, will any of us ever be able to say, I shall not want. No. Yeah. Oh, one thing. Uh, the words of this song are from Revelations. Uh, the words.